Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Defining Severe Asthma is provided by the American Academy of Family Physicians and the American Thoracic Society and is supported by an independent educational group from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP and GlaxoSmithKline. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to the American Thoracic Society and American Academy of Family Physicians educational activity on the topic of severe asthma. Today we're going to talk about facing severe asthma, a focus on new and emerging agents. Hi, I'm Sally Wenzel. I am professor of public health, medicine, and immunology. I'm chair of the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health in the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health. I'm also the director of the Asthma Institute at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Welcome. And I'm Barbara Yawn. I am an adjunct professor in the Department of Family and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. And I'm the chief science officer for the COPD Foundation. And we're very excited about sharing lots of information with you today. You can see that these are our disclosures for our conflicts of interest. The learning objectives there are specific ones for each of the four modules. We're going to start out in the first module talking about making the diagnosis and assuring we have the right diagnosis. In the second module, we're going to talk about effective communication strategies to help patient awareness and to improve outcomes. In the third module, we're going to talk about developing evidence-based treatment plans. And in the fourth module, we're going to review that evidence in the clinical trials on the safety and efficacy of some of the newer medications available for asthma. So let's start, as I said, talking about the pathophysiology, the pathogenesis, and diagnosis of asthma. Asthma, as you know, is very heterogeneous. If you've seen one asthma patient, you've kind of seen one asthma patient. They're going to come <laughs> in true. all ages everything with different symptoms, um, but there are some things that are across the board. For example, uh, they all have chronic airway inflammation. One of the big messages we try to give, if you don't have symptoms that day, it doesn't mean it all went away. You still have asthma, so it's a chronic disease. And it's defined by history of recurrent respiratory symptoms. There's a lot of variability in those symptoms from day to day, week to week, or season to season and they have airway obstruction with reversibility and variability. And we're going to talk about how you demonstrate reversibility. You can't do it by Very just important. looking at the patient. There are other considerations, of course, when you're thinking about how to treat asthma, and those are the associations with allergies. And we realize that there are much greater association with allergies in adults. We used to say, oh, it was mainly kids. But we now know the allergy association is also very heavily with adults. Although and you can have asthma in adults without allergies as well. And I think one of the perhaps misperceptions of patients is that they presume that if they have asthma, they have allergies. And that there can often be a disconnect there. So they don't have to track in a one-to-one -one basis, but clearly there's a, a large association with allergies. Right, and we want to make sure we rule them out. We don't Absolutely. just ignore them. Absolutely. And there are other comorbidities that we're going to talk about. <laughs> Many. <too. laughs> More than we'd like some days. 
So when we're approaching an asthma patient, especially one that's not doing very well, and I think that's mainly our focus today, is we're not talking about the patient that you see once or twice a year, they really aren't having many right. problems. They do very well on very low dose medication. We're talking about the people that are in your office, in the emergency room, in the hospital, uh, and they're just not doing well despite using several levels of therapy. Of therapy. So that's why we really want to make sure when we think about these people, do they actually have asthma? Uh, the history, the physical, the spirometry we're going to talk about. If they have asthma and we confirm their diagnosis, what's contributing to that asthma? We mentioned certainly the allergies, but there are several other things. There are other kinds of triggers that are irritants and not allergens. And those triggers can include things like GERD, reflux, for example and comorbidities. And then we're going to think about, is this severe allergy or severe asthma? And the reason we think it's important is we have newer treatments for severe asthma. And I want to know if this patient has severe asthma, because that's when I need your help as a specialist. So we think then about if this patient does have severe asthma, or even not severe asthma that I'm having problems with, what can the referral center add? And we're going to go through that. So confirming the asthma diagnosis, the first thing, of course, is the history. And we want to think about the people who don't have a diagnosis. I think we've all seen these patients, and we've looked back at their medical record, and they are in for acute bronchitis. I have to say, I All hate that diagnosis. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a... You and me both. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they've been in three or four times a year. They may have seen my partners instead of me, or they were in the urgent care, or they were in the ED, and so I missed the fact that there is this recurrent problem. When you see that, you need to think that this might be asthma and then go ahead with evaluation. I think that's important. Certainly someone with a history of allergies and a long-term history of allergies, and then they're getting respiratory symptoms. Yeah, certainly. That is, and the family history. It does run in families. Yes, it does. And so if we have a mom and a dad or a big brother that has asthma, we should think this person may too. Physical exam. Actually, there may be nothing on the physical exam, mm -hmm. and I think that's confusing sometimes that the patient uh, says, well, somebody diagnosed me with asthma a month or two ago, and you see and hear nothing. But sometimes if you look a little closer, you will see some things like the allergic shiners that we see, the dark circles under their eyes. Uh, if they're having symptoms, wheezing, coughing, some people don't wheeze, mm -hmm. they only cough primarily. Uh, and we need to talk about spirometry as being part of what we use. I have to say, I don't use it still on every single person with asthma if they have very mild, mild asthma. Uh, but if we get beyond that, I'm amazed when I do do spirometry, it's almost always worse than I thought it was going to be. And, and I would just add one of those simple things. You know, in most people's office, there, there is, in fact, an otoscope on the wall. And actually, I think often it's not used enough. And if you look in the nose of patients with asthma, sometimes you will find things in the nose, like a lot of inflammation, a lot of mucus, sometimes even nasal polyps in the nose. And then if you look down the back of the throat, you'll see post-nasal drip, which again goes along to your point with an allergic 
chronic inflammatory process in the upper airways that often contributes to asthma in the lower airways. Well, and it's a really good point because uh, looking in the nose is not always easy and using the otoscope is a great idea. So it isn't always asthma. That's one of the points that we want to make. Some of these people who have very difficult disease to deal with it's because we're treating the wrong disease and they're not likely to get their whatever better when we're treating it for <laughs> asthma. Yep. And there's a couple of studies I think are kind of interesting. One is the first one, these were difficult to treat asthma mm -hmm. patients, not the kind that I usually see in my no. office, but the ones you see in your in office. In my office, absolutely. Right. And of those, 35% of them turned out not to have asthma yeah. and that's why we were having so much trouble. And we think, oh, well, that's just the difficult ones. But it turns out when they looked at the more mild to moderate, a significant number of them, about a third of them who were being called and treated for asthma, actually didn't have it either. So we really need to confirm the diagnosis. It's, it's probably the most important point when you see a patient who's respiratory symptoms are difficult to control. Well, and we don't have a simple test. It's not like we have a hemoglobin A1C. I can say, oh, if it's seven or eight, right. they clearly have diabetes. Well, I don't have one We don't like have that, that. Yep. Spirometry comes as close, I think, to helping us with the hemoglobin A1C concept as pretty much anything. And most primary care physicians can do spirometry if they choose to. Uh, they just don't always choose to. We know somewhere between a third and two thirds of primary care physicians have them in their office now. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be sitting in the back room, but they do need to be used. And the reason they're important is, again, in these people with more difficult to treat disease, we need to do the pre and the post bronchodilator spirometry. Uh, and this is where we see that reversibility we talked about. Uh, and you can see over there in the picture, uh, the pre is the orange, and when you give them the bronchodilator and wait 15 to 20 minutes, then you get the blue. More air can go in and out once they do have the bronchodilatation. Mm -hmm. And if it's 12% or more increase in the FEV1, which is the force expiratory volume that first second, or the force vital capacity, what they blow out in the first six to eight seconds when they try to empty their lungs, either one of those, you get a 12% increase, that's reversibility. We also would like it to be 200 cc's. Fortunately, that isn't so important in most of our asthma patients, maybe some people with really severe lung disease, but this reversibility is important. And, and I would emphasize, though, that the FEV1 is probably the most important of these. Um, sometimes if patients take a deeper breath, they will actually be able to improve both their FEV1 and their FVC 12%. So you'd like to actually see that the improvement in the FEV1 is a little bit more than the improvement in, in the force vital capacity, and that is almost certainly a hallmark of, of asthma. There are times when we have to think of things that are masqueraders. Uh, and these are the ones that I probably send off to you. Yes, I do most of the interpretation for the spirometry for most of the patients. But there are patients that they have a normal spirometry. Uh, the FEV1 is above 80% of predicted. The FVC is where it should be but they're really symptomatic. I find those patients confusing and really would like help. 
Uh, also, the ones that don't have bronchodilator response. Now, that may be that they have COPD, and if they're the proper age, then I may be thinking about that if they have exposures. Mm -hmm. But in a 20-year-old that has no bronchodilator response, something else must be going on. It gets very confusing. It does. And then, of course, the abnormal ones. The one I expect to see is obstruction uh, and reversibility, but we have some that have an atypical pattern or they have restrictive lung disease. Uh, those are the ones that don't fit anything that I'm comfortable treating and that I need you to see. Mm -hmm. So vocal cord dysfunction. I know this is one that you've spent a lot of time with and see a lot. So I'm going to let you talk about this one. So vocal cord dysfunction, at least from my perspective, is probably the biggest masquerader of, of difficult asthma. We see it all the time. And I think to your point about pulmonary function testing that's normal and the patient is still symptomatic, how can that be? And we unfortunately see time and time again that if the patient manifests symptoms of asthma, even if the physician has gotten pulmonary function testing, and sometimes multiple times, and it's always normal, they still get a diagnosis of asthma, and they keep getting more and more and more asthma medications with more and more side effects from right. the asthma medications. So if you see that situation where you have somebody who is having symptoms um, and has normal spirometry, the first thing you should think about is vocal cord dysfunction. And so what is vocal cord dysfunction? It's the paradoxical inspiratory closure of the vocal cords. It is induced or spontaneous. It can arise around odors, fumes, et cetera, or can happen all by itself. Um, it requires an inspiratory spirometric evaluation and or a, a laryngoscopic look at, at the vocal, vocal cords. And so vocal cord dysfunction is a problem of inspiration and the vocal cords normally should be open during inspiration. And you can see on this slide over here that the, the pictures of the vocal cords, the one um, to the left under the, uh, the spirometric uh, image, the vocal cords are open. That's what they should look like during inspiration. However, the one next to it, you can see that those vocal cords are closed pretty shut. That's what happens in vocal cord dysfunction. They close during inspiration. And often you will ask the patient, uh, is it harder to breathe in or breathe out? And they'll even tell you, it's harder to get my air in. And you can see that when those vocal cords are closed, it would be awfully hard to get air past those vocal cords. So you can certainly look at the vocal cords and prove it that way. But Well, it's not very likely I'm going to look in my <laughs> office, but I can do well, something else. you can else. do spirometry. Right. And, and you can see that the upper half of that graph is breathing out. The lower half is breathing in. And a normal, what we call flow volume curve, is the one um, to the left, where they're eh, sort of mirror images of each other. So they get a good flow on inspiration, then they get a good flow on expiration. But the one next to it, you can see that the top part, the expiratory part, really looks normal. It's that lower half where the patient starts taking a breath in, and then it cuts off, and it cuts off because those vocal cords close, and so they can't keep increasing their inspiration. It reaches a plateau very quickly, and they can continue to breathe in, but it's at a much slower um, sort of, sort of uh, uh, flow rate, and they eventually get to a full, uh, they fill up their lungs, and then they breathe out, and the, when they breathe out, 
lo and behold, it's normal. It looks exactly like the curve to the left. So this, I think, can be a very helpful test to do in primary care, mm -hmm. but you do have to make sure that you're getting a good effort on inspiration right. because if, if it, the patients aren't coached well, then you can get this sort of, of uh, flow volume loop even in the absence of vocal cord dysfunction. So it is important to, to have good coaching there. Well, and I always sort of laugh. Uh, I've had more teenage boys with vocal cord dysfunction and restrictive lung disease looking spirometry, mm -hmm. and it's simply because they're not really trying They're not hard. really trying, yep. Once they try hard and you say, yes, that's it, then they can do they it. They can do it, so, yep. But this is really important because I think we do have a lot of these patients, and we don't know that they're there. We're missing them. And, and I think with the, the appropriate history, and spirometry, you can diagnose probably at least 90% of them. And then I am going to send them on probably, though, because I don't treat vocal cord dysfunction, and that is beyond the scope of this, so we're not going to go into that right now. But these are the warning and imitation. Do you want to go through this? So I think of them as red flags. So if you have a patient who's got a long history of multiple trips to the emergency room, multiple courses of, of prednisone over the years, maybe they tell you that they've got episodic cough, shortness of breath, again, especially around things um, like, like perfumes, walking through the aisles of a department store through the perfume aisle, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Um, they believe that they have allergies to things like roses and perfumes, and you actually can't have an allergy to roses or perfumes. Those are irritant reactions. Um, they, if you ask them, do any of your asthma medications actually help you? They'll go, well, no, really none of my asthma medications help me. And as I already said, they have problems getting their air in. It's really hard to get the, the air in as opposed to get it out. The symptoms persist despite normal lung function testing, and one of my uh, most important um, uh, tests that I like to do is to bring a patient in when they're most symptomatic and say, you tell me when you're having problems, then come in and we'll do spirometry on you. And if it's normal, it is almost certainly not asthma when they're having symptoms, you've done normal spirometry. It can be associated with gastroesophageal reflux disease, post-nasal drip, and, and anxiety. And, I can understand why you would certainly want to refer these patients to a specialist, but sometimes if you treat these patients for those comorbid conditions, you can actually dramatically improve their symptoms um, and prevent them from going to the emergency room. Well, and most of us can certainly treat GERD initially anyway, mm, of course. and the postnasal drip and anxiety, anxiety to some extent. <laughs> that's, what, so. that's what primary care does in many cases because those are such common diseases. They are. So the abnormal spirometry, we've talked about those. Uh, the obstructive pattern, this is where they have a low FEV1, they can't get a lot of air out in that first second, and the ratio of the FEV1 to the FVC is low. Now that is something that we can see in asthma. Mm -hmm but we can also see in COPD. Yes. Uh, and we know that, yes, people with COPD can have reversibility, but they usually don't get back to a normal FEV1. Correct. Their FEV1 is usually not up above 80 right. to 85. Right. Right. 
uh, percent of predicted. So that helps. But then there's other things like bronchiectasis that you'd have to think about. And again, if I see someone and I think they have bronchiectasis, it's a referral. <laughs> going to send them off to me. Right. And the restrictive pattern, some of those you know by looking at the patient, looking at their BMI, that they probably have restrictive because they have a very large chest with lots of weight on their lungs and mm -hmm. they can't expand. But they can also have interstitial lung disease. So if you've got someone where you don't think this makes sense that they have anything that could be restrictive, they again need to be sent on. And then the mixed patterns uh, where they have a low FEV1 and a low FEC uh, and the ratio is still abnormal. Those people, yes, they have all kinds of possibilities. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> none of which I'm going to you know, deal with primarily mm -hmm. happy to co-manage after you yes, make, the after make the diagnosis and start sure. treatment. But that's why it's so important because we see all of these things that are potentially going on when we have difficult to treat asthma that may not be asthma. Mm -hmm. So why not spirometry? I mean, this is something I've dealt with for many years, as, as many of my colleagues have some excellent reasons why they don't do it in their office. But there's some that I don't think we should just say, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. One is don't get paid. We actually do get paid if you use the proper codes. And there are codes for all the different levels of testing, mm -hmm. pre and post bronchodilator, you get paid more than only pre. The other thing is you don't ever want to say, oh, I'm following up their asthma. You want to give a reason for doing the test. We all know that's how you get tests reimbursed mm -hmm. and not just bundled into something. And most of the time, that's exactly what you're doing. You're evaluating their cough, their shortness of breath, something like that. And then there's the problem of it's disruptive to practice. Now that one, I completely understand that it can be if you suddenly have one in the middle of the day, just like if you suddenly need an EKG or you suddenly need something else, it is disruptive. Mm -hmm. That's why I think if you can think ahead and schedule those people uh, before you start seeing patients, over the noon hour, um, maybe at the close of the day, but more um, special times when you say, yes, I know that my MA or nurse or whatever is going to be busy doing spirometry, then those are times I try to not be seeing patients. So I think you can Good work it in. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be an occasional disruption, but it's only occasional. <laughs> so the solutions... Uh, again, I think we need an attitude change. Uh, as I said, you can't diagnose many of these diseases uh, or conditions, chronic conditions, without some kind of a laboratory test. Well, you can't really diagnose difficult-to-control asthma without the appropriate lung function testing. Staffing, if you have two or three people trained to do this, then if somebody's on vacation, you still have somebody, or we know young MAs may go out on maternity leave or something, you have a backup, uh, and I think that works very well. They do need to do this often enough so they keep up their skills, and that's why you need to use it regularly in the <laughs> patients where it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as I said, the timing of the test before or after uh, you start seeing patients during the noon hour, sometime where taking your MA or nurse away from working with you is not going to totally disrupt your practice. Right. Is this severe asthma? I think that's one of the questions we ask regularly. 
And one of the first things I think we need to do is we need to talk about control. Uh, severe asthma, we say the patient is out of control. Unfortunately, in primary care, we don't often assess control. We ask something about, well, how's your asthma doing today? And you get either... Oh, it's okay. Yeah, which I have no idea what, what that, that means. Mean? Yeah, <laughs> so I think we need to use these tools. Now, there are several tools that are available. Most people know about the ACT. Uh, and the other two, the ATT&CK and the ACQ, are not used so much in the United States. The asthma APGAR is one that's been designed specifically for primary care, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in a second. Right now, in fact, the reason this was designed for primary care is the top part asks about activity changes and symptoms, daytime and nighttime, and those are the three major factors for asthma control. But then it goes on to ask about the things that most commonly adversely affect control. Mm -hmm. Triggers, what makes your asthma worse? And there's some allergens and there's some irritants there. The next part is asking about if you have asthma medications, how do you take it? Uh, because patients frequently are not doing what you think you've agreed they're going to do. <laughs> One of the things I find regularly is people confusing the uh, quick relievers with the maintenance. The and they'll say, oh yeah, I, I use this one PRN, and it turns out it's uh, an inhaled corticosteroid with a bronchodilator. That's not your PRN medication. So you, this one allows you to do it. It also allows to help uh, with the question of adherence that we'll talk about a little bit more. But why are you not taking your medicine instead of saying, you are taking it, aren't you? Which always is, right. oh, yes, doctor, of I'm course. taking it. That's not a good way to ask. You always want to please your doctor. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> because you never know what's going to happen if you don't. <laughs> exactly. And the last one is uh, when I take my breathing or, or asthma medicine, I feel worse, no different, a little better, or a lot better. I can see this helping in the vocal cord dysfunction, Absolutely. for example. I take it and nothing happens. So. This is the asthma APGAR and one of the tools you can use to assess control. It is linked then to an algorithm, which I think is also different than any of the others. It does suggest the steps you go through. Uh, you assess if someone's not doing well, inhaler technique, their adherence, triggers, smoking, and consider doing lung function testing uh, before you simply step up the medicine. Sometimes it's a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, I'll just give them more. It's uh, easy. It is. You don't have to think. <laughs> yeah, except then they're back. Right, uh, and they're not doing well. Right, and then I have to think even more. So <laughs> instead of you know just upping the medicine, see if one of these is the problem. If it is, fix it. Have them come back. If they're still not better, then you may have to up the medication. And if I've been through this loop a couple of times and they're still not getting better, that's the one on the bottom. Let's send them off and have someone else help me with this. There is the other side of the people who are doing well, and it just reminds you when they are doing well, you want to take that opportunity to reinforce some of the education that we'd like to have mm -hmm. time to do. So the stepwise approach to asthma management has always been there in the guidelines, and it does talk about stepping up therapy 
if people are out of control. And, you know, we're not so worried about the people at step one that go to step two. Okay, a lot of people do. They start getting in step three. Okay, but when they get to step four and five, those are the people we're talking about with difficult to control asthma and potentially severe asthma. And so it's just easy to remember you're at step four or five, you need to think to go the next at steps in evaluation too. So severe asthma, we'll talk about that, and I'm going to let you define that in a minute, but it's a really important to realize that of all of our people with asthma, about 20% have difficult to control asthma. Now a portion of those people are going to have something that I can handle or can try at mm -hmm. least, like poor adherence, inadequate inhaler technique, a trigger, somebody Correct. smoking yeah. in the car or the house and I can help do something about that. But there is that 5 to 10% of all people with asthma that I can do everything that I know how to do and they're still not getting better. Those are the people that have severe asthma and you're going to tell us about the definition in a couple minutes. So the criteria may be higher in some clinical practices. We don't know that. The factors that control that contribute to uncontrolled asthma, we've talked a little bit about those. Uh, but I think they're important. There's the environmental factors, there's the disease-related factors, uh, and there's the patient-related factors. Uh, and all of those need to be addressed, but then there's also the physician-related factors mm -hmm. uh, that we really need to address, and that's under-prescribing, although I don't worry about under-prescribing a great deal. I think we do more over-prescribing, <laughs> over yeah. The failure to assess adherence, the failure to assess inhaler technique, assuming the pharmacist is going to do it. And pharmacists don't have time either, and they frequently don't do it, so nobody does it. The misdiagnosis, the lack of an asthma action plan, the patient gets worse and they really don't know what to do about it, so they end up in the emergency room or somewhere else. And then the absence of specialty care when we have a problem that we really don't know what to do about. So I think all of those are really important and need to be addressed. And we'll talk about some of them again, like the comorbidities. Uh, but I think that it's a nice way to think about what should yeah. we evaluate, what's going on in their lives. So poor adherence to asthma therapies really is a problem. I mean, we always know, oh yeah, my patients are very adherent. Your patients are a problem. About 50% of what we prescribe ever gets taken in the first place. 82% uh, of patients with asthma don't fill their inhaled corticosteroid prescriptions for a lot of reasons. Some of them are cost, but there's also fears and concerns. And there's, well, you know, I feel pretty good right now, so I don't yeah. need it. I'm, my asthma's cured. Mm -hmm. Wrong answer. And then there's the 11%, even in clinical trials, when somebody's calling them once a week, are still not taking their medications at least 80% of the time. And I would say uh, asthma therapy is complicated. It's not like you can just take a pill in the morning to treat your high blood pressure or whatever. You have to use an inhaler. You have to rinse your mouth. There are a lot of other steps. And I think if you look at the, the statistics that have now been done on adherence, 
it's not just asthma patients that have this no. poor adherence. It's literally every disease, any chronic disease that requires taking medications on a regular basis, patients are not likely to take them nearly as often as we would like them to. And so I think we have to sort of step back a little bit too and not necessarily blame the patient right. for not being adherent to their therapy, which sometimes I've seen some of my colleagues do. I think we actually want to understand why it's difficult for them to take their medications and then uh, address those concerns and help them to take their medications on a, on a more regular basis. I agree completely. So define severe asthma for us. Well, I think we've set the stage very nicely um, in defining severe asthma. Uh, certainly, you have to go through all the steps that we've gone through already. You've got to, number one, make sure that it actually is asthma. Um, you've got to understand, are there comorbidities that are contributing to making it worse? Maybe it's really not as bad as it seems if you treat some of these, these comorbidities, including things like adherence and exposures, et cetera. But once you've gone through all of those steps, then what are you left with? So you're left with a patient who you've addressed all of those issues who really has asthma, and this asthma is such that requires treatment with high doses of inhaled corticosteroids plus a second controller or systemic corticosteroids, prednisone, medrol, to prevent it from becoming uncontrolled or which remains uncontrolled despite all of that therapy. So it's a very specific uh, definition. Now, it's still a clinical definition. There's no hemoglobin A1C in there. Right. It's still a very clinical definition. And so, unfortunately, asthma and severe asthma in particular are really umbrella definitions. They identify groups of patients that, again, we can all sort of recognize who have changes in lung function, who have a set of symptoms that track along with asthma, who may or may not have exacerbations. And they have these in some mix um, that makes it very personal to each one of those, those patients. But it really doesn't tell us anything about underlying what's driving their disease. So we're going to move now to some case studies that will actually hopefully help us to think about that difficult case that comes into our practice and, and how to deal with it. So we'll start with case number one. This is John. John is a pretty typical 34-year-old, happens to work in, in construction. He's had asthma or a diagnosis of asthma since he was a child, since the age of 10, which is probably when the majority of asthma cases uh, start. Um, his chief complaint and his uh, uh, history of present illness is that his asthma is interfering with his work. His boss actually told him that he had to get it checked out. You're not working as efficiently um, and productively as, as you used to, to work because you have to go off and take your inhaler every now and then. Um, he's actually already on the highest dose of long-acting beta agonist and inhaled corticosteroid that is marketed, so he's on a good therapeutic regimen, and he's actually had a large increase in his doses over the, the last year. He went from being on low doses to now being on high doses. And despite that, despite that, he's still taking his albuterol, his rescue medication, three to four times a day. So what do we do next? And I think there's a lot of things that are really important in this situation. This is a pretty common situation. Um, and I think it's important to address, gee, how good is his control at this point? And it doesn't sound like it's going to be very good based on, on uh, what he told you today, but we actually did the APCAR, and it, it's five, uh, which is 
not very good. Um, his ACT is 15, his asthma control test, again, not very good. If you look at his activity modification, um, at least weekly, he had a score of one. Um, symptoms, at least four days in the past two weeks, got a score of two on that. And he awakened twice in the past two weeks, which is a lot. If you're waking up with asthma, that really is indeed a red flag. So his total score was five. He's not in control. Clearly, he's not in control. Um, but he's not sitting there you know, needing to go to the emergency room. It's, he's just not well controlled. But, in fact, he was in the emergency room in the emergency department about six months ago for an asthma attack. So sitting there in your office, doctor, what are you going to do now? What's our next step? Do we just increase his, his uh, medications? I hope we don't. <laughs> I hope we think about it a little bit first. Uh, you know, are you saying he's a construction worker? Is there something uh, in construction? I know that a lot of guys and gals out of the construction site may be smoking. Is he around tobacco smoke? Uh, is he doing construction outside or inside? Is there a lot of sawdust? What else is going on in his mm -hmm. environment? I'd like mm -hmm. to know that. Uh, and then I want to know, is he taking that medication that I think that we've agreed on? Oh, uh, clearly in incredibly important points. So we ask a little deeper questions, um, and it finds out, we find out that John um, cuts grass, uh, he gets worse around uh, uh, when he's cutting grass, and he's worse around trees that are blooming, and he, when he's around tobacco smoke. He doesn't smoke, but on his construction site, to, right. to your point, most of his buddies actually do. Now, when we talk to him about his medication use, he's, he says, hey, I'm taking my medication on most days. Well, that's always a little bit. You know, you're a little uncomfortable with right. that. And then you try to get a little bit more granular. Well, does that mean you're getting it every other day? Does that mean you're getting it once a day on a couple of days of the week? And <laughs> you really do have to do that, right. that deeper dive. And then you kind of understand that, oh, he's also had some social events in his life that are important to understand, right. too. He's, he's uh, recently divorced. I've never been divorced, but I can certainly imagine that it's a pretty traumatic um, event to go through, and your, your rest of your world kind of falls apart during that time. So he's a little less organized. Um, and then, of course, you've got the, the uh, insurance and reimbursements and what's on the formulary, and lo and behold, his pharmacy actually changed his inhaler. Um, it's a similar type of inhaler, but it's not the same that he was on before. So all of those things, I think, are things to, to uh, pay attention to. Um, and then his response to therapy says, you know, it usually worked, uh, but he felt that he had a better response to that old medication before his pharmacy uh, changed that, uh, that, what they filled for his prescription. So does, in fact, John have severe asthma? Again, got to work through all of these various aspects of understanding his, his uh, level of adherence, comorbidities, et cetera. So the first thing you've got to do is to understand his inhaler technique. And is he, does he have good or poor technique? He actually didn't have such great technique when, when we actually addressed it. And, of course, most of the studies would say that that's something that literally every time you see an asthma patient, you should go through their inhaler technique mm -hmm. because even though they demonstrate good technique one time, the next time they're very likely not to have good technique. And, of course, right. we have multiple inhalers. So he's retaught with the, with the new inhaler. Because of his persistence of his testing, we, in fact, got spirometry on him. Uh, and, of course, as we've kind of tried to emphasize with the vocal cord dysfunction, it's important to not just review the numbers, but to actually look at those flow volume loops. Is there evidence of a vocal cord problem? 
And when we look at the numbers, his flow volume loop looks actually good, but his FEV1 is 75% and his FEC is 82% of predicted. So he's got a ratio that's 0.73. Now, you know, many of us would be influenced by the COPD literature, which would say, oh, well, he's, he's more than 70%, so he's not obstructed. But in fact, he's 34 years old. He is not your 65-year-old COPD right. patient. And so that ratio of 0.73 is actually pretty obstructed for a 34-year-old. And then we give him albuterol, and he has an 18% improvement in his FEV1, which pretty much confirms that the man does have asthma um, and that he has evidence of ongoing obstruction. So we want to evaluate for other things that might be making his symptoms worse, things like gastroesophageal reflux disease, things like postnasal drip and rhinosinusitis. Um, and then I think probably one of the most important things is encourage him not to hang out with his buddies who are smoking, or at least maybe have him even more appropriately encourage his buddies not to smoke, because <laughs> clearly that's a big issue too. Um, and then I think just from the standpoint of having a little bit of background information on this patient, getting a complete blood count with a differential, not just a complete blood count, and then to consider things like allergy testing and, and IgEs. And the complete blood count, you're not really looking at the white count total, you're really looking at eosinophils. I'm really looking at, at eosinophils. And I think this is something we'll spend a lot of time talking on, uh, about later on, but it's such a simple test and it give, can give you so much information. Well, and a lot of times if you look in the chart, you have a couple of, of white counts with differential over the last three or four years, and you can see then kind of track it over time. And Oh, yeah, look at that. It's been elevated for quite a while. Sometimes you get really lucky, and a patient has had a blood count done when they went to the emergency room before they got their steroids. And in that case, oftentimes that can be very helpful because then you will see a real spike in their eosinophils. What about treatment? Uh, well, certainly we want to reinforce the inhaler techniques, obviously, every time the, you see the patient. You want to focus on adherence. Um, there's some uh, studies now out to suggest that measuring things in your exhaled breath that we'll talk about a little later on called exhaled nitric oxide can actually help us identify whether the patient is taking their medications on, on a regular uh, basis. Certainly you want to treat their heartburn, you want to treat their, their rhinitis. You could consider adding a, a, a third controller medication, so a long-acting uh, muscarinic agent or a leukotriene receptor an antagonist. But I think it's really important to follow this patient. So don't just say, okay, your asthma was not under great control. Here we did these things. See you in six months. It's really important to say, no, I need to see you in three or four weeks. I need to follow up on this. And or I think that's what we really in primary care need to keep doing more of, having those patients come back. Because it does make a difference. You don't want them to come back in six months when they've been to the emergency room three, three times, times exactly. before you see them. You want to be proactive and see them when they're not having an exacerbation, hopefully, and you can see what you did, has it made any difference? Right. And you can learn a lot about patients by seeing them a little bit more frequently as well. So let's move on to our next patient. So this is Janice. Janice is a 23-year-old student. Uh, she comes to Student Health for, for follow-up, and Student Health uh, is kind of a busy place, and sometimes you don't get all the attention that maybe you could actually use. And she's been to the, the emergency department three times this year for, for her asthma. She was diagnosed in her teens. Um, she's never been well controlled right from the start uh, and has been really back and forth into the emergency department 
every year since her diagnosis. She's on a whole boatload of medications, including her uh, short-acting beta agonist or combination therapies, and, and now she's even on a, a leukotriene receptor antagonist. So what do you do now? What do you do in this case? Somehow I see some red flags that you talked about <laughs> showing up here. I probably, yes, in addition to inhaler technique and adherence, I better get that spirometry and maybe the inspiratory flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think this is, she, the, to have asthma develop in the teenage years, certainly it does, uh, but then to be poorly controlled right from the start, to be on all of those asthma medications and not having a response to therapy, you really want to say, is this asthma? That's the most important question. And lo and behold, when you do even a peak flow and she's still having, saying she's having some wheezing, her peak flow is completely normal. It's 450. That's a pretty good peak flow. Um, but despite that, her APGAR says she's not in control, okay? So there's a disconnect. And she looks at circles triggers of cold air, exercise, cigarette smokes, and writes in perfumes. Again, more red flags here. Uh, she takes most of her asthma medications most of the time. She identifies uh, albuterol, that is her quick relief medication, and, and uh, she identifies that her other medications are daily, regular medications. But when you ask her, do her asthma medications help very much, she says, um, a little. Well, again, that's another red flag that her asthma medications aren't helping her very much. So are you comfortable with the asthma diagnosis? I'm not. And I'm not anymore either, for sure. <laughs> So, so what are our next steps? Well, again, all the, the good things that we've talked about, right. um, making sure her inhaler technique is good and seeing if she's adherent. And she doesn't really describe allergen triggers. None of those things that she said made her asthma worse are really allergic um, triggers. She talked about irritants. And so we're going to do our spirometry. Um, not consistent with obstructive lung disease. Surprise, surprise. And she had such a, a good peak flow but they are consistent with vocal cord dysfunction. She's got that flattening of her inspiratory uh, flow volume loop. So what are our next steps? Again, further questions. Is it harder to get the air in or to get it out? Well, getting in is harder. I'm, I'm gasping for breath. Um, and one of the other things that people will say is, people hear me wheezing across the room. If anyone says that their friends and family tell them they're wheezing across the room, it's probably not asthma. It's very difficult because, to hear yeah, lower airway wheezing across the room. Upper airway wheezing, you can hear. Um, heartburn, yep, she uses Tums, and she uses them fairly frequently. You know, being, being a student can be pretty stressful. Yes. Post-nasal drip, no, she doesn't have that. Mm, she does have some anxiety, though. Right, and we did use the GAD-7, which is a seven-question screening tool for anxiety. Uh, and I think is a great way to figure out they have anxiety because just say, well, are you anxious? If they're a college student, of course they're anxious. <laughs> Absolutely. They've got to take tests, but this is a more global measure, and I think it's very helpful. Yeah, no, and, and again, anxiety, post-nasal drip, heartburn are all things that you need to think about when you're worried about vocal cord dysfunction. So we think she's got vocal cord uh, dysfunction. We're going to treat her heartburn, give her some breathing techniques, and again, have her come back. Don't send her out for six months to return later. And, and we start to taper back on her asthma medications. This is such a wonderful thing. One of the happiest days of my life is when I can take patients off of medications as opposed to adding more medications. Well, and this one is especially important to have back maybe eight weeks, but maybe even sooner, because this is the person who has 
a test, gets more anxious, got more wheezing, ends up back in the emergency room, and they put her back on all those medications oh my goodness, again. Oh, they do. They go, so, those, those doctors that treat you regularly, they don't know what you're doing. We see you now, and we're going to put you on uh, Right, oral so prednisone. these really you need to see frequently until yeah, you get them back to maybe no asthma medicines at all. Which is the hope. Yes. Absolutely, which is the hope. So thank you. I think this has been very useful to think about, is it asthma? And if it is asthma, is it uncontrolled asthma? And then is it severe asthma? And we're going to go on and talk about some more of severe asthma in the next module. On behalf of the American Thoracic Society and the American Academy of Family Physicians, thank you so much for joining us for this very important educational program. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by the American Academy of Family Physicians and the American Thoracic Society and is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP and GlaxoSmithKline. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.